Let's pray. Lord God, this morning I ask that our love would abound more and more. Our love for you, our love for others, that would abound more and more in knowledge and in all discernment so that we would approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, that we would be filled with the fruit of righteousness so that you would be glorified today, God. So help us abound today. Help us to abound in love, in joy, in hope, in you. In Jesus' name. Amen. One late night around the year 50 AD, as Paul and his companions, Timothy, Luke, and Silas, were resting outside the city of Troas, suddenly and without warning, a vision appeared to Paul. There standing before him was a man from Macedonia who began to implore him, come over to Macedonia and help us. Come to Macedonia and help us. And then he was gone. This was an answer to prayer. Paul and his companions had been seeking where the Lord wanted them to go and preach the gospel. So Paul concluded immediately that this vision was from the Lord and that he had called them to preach the gospel in Macedonia. So they headed out straight away making a two-day journey across the Aegean Sea to the port of Neapolis and then walked some nine miles along the Ignatius or Ignatian way to Philippi. Christianity had come to Europe. Now, Philippi wasn't a big city, about 10,000 people, maybe a little less. It was situated on a fertile plain along the Ganges River in what is today northeastern Greece. It had been founded by the Greeks in the 4th century BC and was named after Philip of Macedonia, who was the father of Alexander the Great. But by now, by this time, by Paul's time, it had become a Roman colony governed by Roman law made up of upper-class Latin-speaking Roman expatriates and a large lower-class Greek populace comprised predominantly of construction workers, tradesmen, and merchants. Once they arrived, Paul says that on the Sabbath day, they went outside the gate of the city near the river to what was a place of prayer, where they sat down and spoke to a group of Gentile women who were gathered there. As Luke tells it, he says, one of the women who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Not only did she pay attention, but she and her entire household believed that day, and they were all baptized on the spot. That evening, they all headed back to her house for dinner. Hey, we're going to Lydia's for dinner. This is great. But along the way, they encountered a demonically possessed girl who had brought her owners much wealth from her fortune-telling. 
we're told that she followed them around, crying out in a loud voice, These men are servants of the Most High God who claim to the way to you, the way of salvation. Over and over and over, as they're walking through the streets. These, these men are from the Most High God. And they've been... Pre- hour after hour after hour. Day after day. It says, after several days of this, we're told that Paul had become greatly annoyed. (laughs) So unable to take it anymore, he exercised the demon on the spot. Needless to say, the owners of this little girl were not too appreciative of having their main source of income taken away. So they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers of the town. And after they told the magistrates what had occurred and that it was a violation of the Roman law, Paul and Silas were beaten badly and thrown into prison. Sitting in prison, bruised and bleeding, they sang hymns to God that night. And as they sang, a massive earthquake hit the prison. That's pretty cool when it just hits the prison. Shaking its foundations, freeing them from their stocks, and opening the prison doors. When the jailer awoke to this scene, that's a good, good job, good work ethic here. When he awoke to the scene, he drew his sword to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul stopped him, assuring him that all of the prisoners were still there. And we're told that this jailer immediately fell down before Paul and Silas and said, What must I do to be saved? And they told him, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. There were more baptisms that day. The next morning, when the magistrates learned that Paul and Silas were actually Roman citizens, uh uh-oh, they quickly apologized and asked them, could you leave the city quietly and not make a big hubbub, please? Because we don't want to get in trouble because you're Roman citizens. They did. They left town, visiting Lydia and her family on the way out of town. And thus began the church at Philippi. A woman and her family from Thyatira, a jailer and his family, maybe a young, formerly demon-possessed, annoying girl, and perhaps a few of those other women and their families that were alongside the river that day. Now fast forward about 10 years. Paul is, well, once again in prison. This time in a Roman prison. From this prison, he writes letters to the churches at Colossae, Ephesus, and this little burgeoning church in Philippi. This, this morning, is the letter that we will begin looking at. The letter to the Philippians. Because this is a letter, we're going to see a lot of personal affections expressed, appreciation shown, 
advice given, it will seem that in some ways we are reading a quasi-private communication, a letter. We're looking in on somebody's private mail, which we are. Yet it's a letter given by inspiration of God from the pen of the Apostle Paul to not just the church of Philippi, but to the church universal. And so it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Philippians is divided into four chapters, 104 verses. If you sit down to read it, it will take you about 10 minutes. I would encourage you to do that, but not right now. For those of you who like a challenge, I challenge you to read it every day. Only 10 minutes a day. Read it every day for the next five weeks as we progress through the book. For many people, the book of Philippians is one of their favorite books of the Bible. How many of you is it your favorite book of the Bible? One, two, a couple, a couple. Well, that's because it's a veritable treasure trove of the most quotable verses contained in the New Testament. Among them, here's just a few. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. About this one, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Mm. Then there's this one, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence... If there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. We don't like that one. Never mind. Put that one away. (laughs) And of course, there's I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can see why so many people love this book. This morning, our main objective is to get an overview of the book as a whole while looking at the opening 11 verses. So if you will, open with me to Philippians 1.1, and we will begin reading there. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this might seem like a canned opening to a letter. Kind of like the typical greeting you'd find on some kind of impersonal mailing that you receive or email. 
you know, the to whom it may concern or, or dear so-and-so, greetings and sal- salutations. We don't use that language anymore, do we? Greetings and salutations. The opening of Paul's letters do have this familiar ring. Their basic components can be found in almost any piece of first century literature and containing the author, the recipients, and a greeting, some kind of blessing or, or good wishes. But it would be a mistake to mis- dismiss Paul's handling of this standard template as though it were a thoughtless salutation. The first three lines are loaded with significance and meaning, and, and, there are follow, and they are followed by a prayer that together reveal Paul's purposes in writing this letter. In these opening verses, we will find three fundamental components that comprise this epistle. As I read it through and through, over and over, these are the three things that I see, the fundamental ideas within this epistle. Number one, Paul's love for and desire to honor Christ. Number two, Paul's love for the Philippians. And number three, Paul's desire for them to do the same. That is to love and honor Christ and to love the Philippians or each other. So let's begin with that first line. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. From this simple sentence, we derive uh, some basic truths as long as some pretty profound truths. Uh, The basic truths, we learn who the authors are. It's listed here as Paul and Timothy. Now, as we progress through the letter, we're going to find that uh, Paul is the one really composing this letter and that Timothy is, is simply with him or perhaps writing it down um, as Paul speaks. But Paul is the primary author. Um, but we see much more than that in this simple first line. It's the first thing we see of the fundamental components. Paul's love for and desire to honor Christ. How is that so? Well, what's unexpected in this greeting is how Paul and Timothy describe themselves. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. This probably doesn't seem like much to us today, but this was a big deal back then. How would you how did you how did you describe yourself? How did you introduce yourself? Paul I, Paul and Timothy identify themselves through these words. Who are they? What are they about? How do they want to be identified? What is it that they want their readers to understand about them as they open this letter that they are servants of Christ Jesus? Now the word servants here in Greek is doulos or douloi because it is plural. The term literally means slaves. They are slaves to Christ Jesus. They are subjects to a Lord, to a master. The importance here then is not placed on the one who is the slave, but upon the one who is the master. To be someone's slave is to, to defer to them, to their name, to their authority, to their reputation. The slave is simply the representative of the master. So Paul is not making much of himself or Timothy saying, hey, look who we are. 
No, rather he is pointing to his master. He must increase. We must decrease. And who is this master? Christ Jesus. Now, if you ever want to get a quick idea about what a book is about, just simply look up the most frequently used words in that book. Pretty easy way to go about it. In Philippians, the words Jesus, Christ, and Lord are used more than 60 times. In 104 verses, 60 times. What and who is this book first and foremost about? Jesus Christ, the Lord. So we need to take some time to examine Paul's thoughts about his master. He doesn't wait long. Verses 20 and 21 of chapter 1, he says, It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ." And to die is gain. (laughs) Listen to that. Paul wants Christ to be honored in his body, whether by his living or by his dying. What does it say of the master that the greatest desire of his servant is that he honors him? What I want is for him to be honored. Whether I live or whether I die, I want honor to come to my master. Whoa! May he be magnified through me. Then he says that for him to live is Christ and to die is gain. What what do you mean by that? Well, he continues in verse 23. My desire is to depart. That means die. My desire is to die and be with Christ. For that is far better. That is far better. What? To be with Christ is far better. To die and therefore be in the presence of his master is far better than living on in this world. What is it that Paul wants? Christ himself. Oh, if I could only be with Christ. But something else he wants. He wants to please Christ. Serve Christ and honor Christ here on earth. And so for him to live is Christ. To make much of him. To do his will and to make him known. So he says, I want you to know, brothers... That what has happened to me, that means prison, I'm in prison, has really served to advance the gospel. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for what? Is for Christ. I'm in prison for Christ. Paul says that it's all for the sake of Christ in this gospel. That he willingly went there and underwent the sufferings and hardships of imprisonment for the sake of his master. It's reminiscent of those verses in the second letter to the church at Corinth where Paul says, he said, 
far greater labors, far more imprisonments. We we saw that. With countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys. In danger from rivers. Danger from robbers. Danger from my own people. Danger from the Gentiles. Danger in the city. Danger in the wilderness. Danger at sea. Danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship. Through many a sleepless night. In hunger and thirst. Often without food. In cold and exposure. Why? Why would someone go through all of that? What on earth could possibly motivate someone to undergo that? Paul tells us. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Mm. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Listen to those words. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. The surpassing worth. Everything is loss. It's rubbish. It's negative return. It's deficit. It's deficiency. All of the wealth and the power and the reputation and the rights that Paul had were a deficit compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. All of the hardship and suffering were worth it. Why? Because of the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. He wanted to do all he did for the sake of his Lord, his Master, Jesus. And this is because he knew that surpassing worth, that infinite worth. He talks about it in chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. Jesus, who being in very nature God, that's all he needed to say. He could have just stopped right there. He's God, infinitely worthy. Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Wow. Rather, he made himself nothing. No wonder Paul is taking all of these things and saying, this is loss. I want to become nothing too so that I can show Christ. Jesus made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a doulos, of a servant, of a slave, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Very God humbling himself, becoming obedient to death on a cross. Therefore, Paul says, God exalted him to the highest place 
and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge, confess, that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This Jesus, this Jesus of whom Paul speaks, he's the advocate. This Jesus is the Almighty. He is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, the Amen, the Anointed One, the author of life, the branch, the bread of life, the commander of the Lord's army, the consolation of Israel, the cornerstone, the desire of all nations, the faithful and true. Jesus. This Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. The glory of the Lord, the good shepherd, the horn of salvation, the great I am. The King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the lily of the valley, the fairest of 10,000, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the bright and morning star, the prince of peace, the author and perfecter of our, of our faith, the radiance of God's glory, the resurrection and the life, the son of righteousness. Can I get an amen? He is the righteous one, the holy one, the just one, the king, eternal, immortal. He is gracious and compassionate, merciful and mighty, wise and winsome, the loveliest, the most beautiful, majestic person in all of existence, the quintessence of glory, goodness, hope, and delight. This is Jesus. This is His Jesus. This is your Jesus. Amen. No wonder Paul could say that all else was lost compared to the surpassing riches of knowing Christ. How it's just like a handful of the titles that Scripture ascribes to Christ. You want a great study? Go find all of the titles of Christ. I was going to do them all. We would have been here a very long time. Paul saw who Jesus was. He was like, wow. Wow. The surpassing worth of knowing Christ. There could be nothing better in the universe. And I get to be his servant. And that points us to another predominant theme in this book. Joy! 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 Philippians is often called the epistle of joy. I talked earlier about the frequency of language. The words joy and rejoice appear 16 times in the book. 14, he says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. 115 he says some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry but others from goodwill what then only that in every way whether in pretense or in truth Christ is proclaimed and in that I rejoice rejoice Paul and Timothy's slavery is not a burden but a joy why Master is so good. So, so 
very good. To know the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus is joy itself. We spoke about this last week at the conclusion of Deuteronomy. There was and is nothing greater that God could ever do than to call His people to love Him, to rejoice in Him, to be filled with Him, to worship Him, to find their joy being His people. And Paul is filled with this joy. Even as a prisoner. <laughs> and then he says, you guys going to, I said you could read the book in 10 minutes. Well, we'll probably get 80% of it this morning. It says in chapter 2, verse 17, and even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, even if I am to be put to death, I am sad and sullen. Oh man, this is horrible. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Rejoice! Because Paul was filled with joy and rejoicing because of Christ. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Because this is his master. Because in the midst of all those circumstances which he found himself, he still had what? You can put me in prison, but you can't keep Jesus out of there to be with me. You can torture me, Christ is with me. You can do whatever you want to me because Christ is there with me. And in that, I rejoice. And that body is the root of joy. Not circumstances, but who's with you in the midst of circumstances. And this brings us to the second line of Paul's greeting. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, the overseers and deacons. I say this brings us to this line because another part of Paul's joy was in the saints who were at Philippi. <laughs> he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Why? Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. In 4.1 he says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, beloved. This is the second major component of this book. Paul's love for the Philippians. It seems that Paul had a particularly close relationship with and love for this body of believers in Philippi. Throughout this letter, we see that there's been a deep-seated, ongoing bond between Paul and the believers here. He says, it is right for me to feel this way about you all, 
because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. He yearns for them with the affection of Christ Jesus. Later on, he says to them, I hold you in my heart. This close-knit partnership, close-knit partnership had begun 10 years prior on the banks of the Ganges and had grown and flourished since then. It included this body of believers supporting Paul in his ministry when other churches did not. They had abandoned him. He says later, he says, It was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, or Thessalonica, depends on who you are and what you like, you sent me to help, you sent me help for my needs once and again. They even sent one of their own, Epaphroditus, who we'll read about in chapters 3 and 4, to help Paul in his ministry endeavors. You see, this letter comes from the depth of fellowship that Paul and the Philippians shared in the gospel as fellow believers. Said it multiple times, because of your partnership in the gospel, for you're all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Those who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together. Hence the word, Saints we work together for the gospel. We work together for the sake of the gospel, for the proclamation of Christ, for the rejoicing in Christ, for the love of Christ. Now, I don't want you to miss a very important word here. He says, to all the saints, in Christ Jesus, who are at Philippi. Paul includes all of the Christians at Philippi, not just some of them. This is a massive emphasis here at the beginning of his letter. Each of the yous that we see in these first 11 verses are plural. So, this is how the Western country Paul would have written this. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, grace to y'all, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of y'all, always in every prayer of mine, for y'all all, making my prayer with joy because of y'all's partnership in the gospel. For I am sure of this, that he who began a work in y'all will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about y'all all, because I hold you all in my heart. For y'all are all partakers. Y'all are all partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness how I yearn for y'all all with the affection of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> each, each you all 
is intentional. Paul embraces every believer in Philippi. And this is important for them to remember because this is one of the reasons that Paul is writing this letter, which we'll get to in a few minutes. But they are not all saints because they live good, good lives, because they fellowship together, because they go to church together. They are all saints because of that last phrase, in Jesus Christ. You see, he, he not only wants them to understand his and Timothy's identities, but he wants them to understand their own identity. The same Christ that Paul and Timothy worship are their Christ too. Neither Paul nor they have a righteousness of their own that comes from the law, but that which comes through what? Through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. As he has said in multiple other places, this is grace. It is by grace through faith that you have been saved. This not your own doing, it is the gift of God and not by works. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. For y'all are all partakers with me of grace. Therefore, our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior. He's looking forward to that. He's coming back. We're going to get to see Him. The Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him to even subject all things to Himself. That's what he means by grace and peace to you. And God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We have that grace. We walk in that grace. We know that peace because we walk in that grace. And then Paul says, <clears throat> and I am sure of this, I'm sure of this. I am convinced. I am absolutely convinced of this. All y'all, partakers with me of grace, that he who began a good work in you, who began the work? He did. He will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Paul is confident, certain, sure that God will bring that work of grace to fruition. Grace and peace to you. What is that? That is Paul saying, may that blessing of God, may His hand be upon you. May His grace be upon you in all circumstances. When you are weak and frail and when you are strong and mighty, His grace and His peace be upon you. A little excited this morning. But the work of God's grace is not just to Save them. And then let them be. Get saved. You don't need the gospel anymore. 
<laughs> Beat them up. No. The grace of this gospel extends into their lives in a multitude of ways. This is why Paul turns immediately to how he prays for them. It is in this prayer for them that we discover the other purposes of Paul's writing. Just his love, not just his love for God, not just his love for the body. He says, this is how I pray. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Paul's prayer encapsulates the final fundamental component of this letter. Paul's desire for them to do the same. That is, to love and honor Christ and to love each other. Paul prays that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. <clears throat> now I want you to notice that your love here has no object. I want your love to abound. Well, like, but, like, to whom? Paul doesn't specify the object of that love here. And I believe he does it intentionally. You see, Paul is very familiar with the greatest commandments. With Jesus' words, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all of the law and prophets. May your love for God and for people abound more and more. Given Paul's love for Jesus and the church and the lost, it's as if he's saying, I want your love for God in Christ and for one another to abound, to grow, to deepen, to flourish, to multiply, to overflow in limitless abundance for Christ and also for one another. That's what I'm praying for. Limitless abundance for one another. The love and passion that he has for Jesus that says to live as Christ is the same love he wants them to have for Jesus. And he wants them to have that same love for one another that he has for each of them. Now he qualifies this abounding love. It is to be with knowledge and all discernment. These are interesting terms, aren't they? Nowadays, love seems to be contrasted with knowledge instead of being informed by knowledge. Love is considered some kind of blind sentiment, a rather ethereal concept or feeling. We hear slogans bandied about, like all you need is love. Love is blind. Or the really profound one, love is love. And yet Paul says here that love must abound in knowledge. The word Paul, use, Paul uses here is epignosis, with knowledge. Paul uses it frequently in his letters, and in every instance, it's in reference to the knowledge of the truth of God and of Christ. That is, love must be understood in reference to God and Christ. 
We do not make up a definition of what love is, but rather discover what love is in reference to God, to the God who is love. God is love. Love is not love. God is love. This God is the origin, the apex, the consummate exemplar of love. How do we know what love is? We look at Him and we find it in reference to Him, the God who is love. We know true love through a true knowledge of God. And we cannot know true love apart from Him. Further, love is also to be discerning. With all discernment. That is, where it is in violation of a true knowledge of love, that we can identify where it deviates or strays from true love and the expression of true love. This is calling us or them to a practical insight that keeps the love of God in focus and is able to detect or correct any so-called love that is not ultimately love. They can use the term all day long. But a name is just a name. Unless it's centered on God, on the true knowledge. As you can see, love and truth go hand in hand. Love rejoices in the truth. 1 Corinthians 13, 6. You cannot have one without the other. To attempt to have love without truth or knowledge is to have a benign, sappy, lifeless, and loveless sentimentality. To attempt to have truth without love is to have a cold, sterile, lifeless, and worthless set of ideas. True love loves truth. And true truth loves love. I kind of like that last paragraph, so I'm going to read it again. To attempt to have love without truth or knowledge is to have a benign, sappy, lifeless, and loveless sentimentality. To attempt to have truth without love is to have a cold, sterile, lifeless, and worthless set of ideas. True love loves truth. And true truth loves love. You see, over the years, many a Christian or church have cleaved to truth while neglecting love and vice versa. Jesus commended the church at Ephesus for its doctrinal vigilance, but admonished them for their loss of love. And then he praised the church at Thyatira for their amazing love and rebuked them for their compromise with falsehood. So also in our time, some Christians and churches fixate on doctrinal purity at the expense of love, showing little patience for those who are theologically imprecise and little compassion for those in need, while others swing to the other end of the pendulum, being consumed by service-based love while neglecting the truths that comprise our faith, because, well, we don't want anybody to feel excluded. How we love God and our neighbors is not willy-nilly. There's a quotable one. How we love God and our neighbors is not willy-nilly. Scripture has given us a clear path for both. Paul prays that the saints at Philippi would walk that path. Paul prayed that his love would overflow up to Christ and out to each other in limitless abundance. May it be so 
for you, Hope Chapel. That your love would flow up to Christ and out to those in this room, to your neighbors, to your community. The rest of the prayer, he prays, so that, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Here we see how this growth of an internal heartfelt affection for God and Christ and our neighbors is to manifest in the Christian life. You see, Paul's desire for them is that they live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Gee, that standing, that living in a manner worthy of the gospel, that kind of sounds familiar, doesn't it? This is because walking in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ is a predominant theme in Paul's letters, as well as throughout the rest of the New Testament. And guess what else? The Old Testament. Yeah, we talked about it in Deuteronomy. Oh, who knew? That we would be living out this high and holy calling of the gospel, exemplifying our titles of being Christians. Yes, Christian discharging our responsibilities in such a way that people would say that you do justice to that name. I have the title Christ on me. What do people think of him? That when people see me, when they see you, they praise God. Whoa, their God is amazing. And and they wonder at the power and the goodness of Christ in his gospel. By looking at you. By approving what is excellent. Being pure and blameless. And being filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. This is the practical outworking of the inward transformation. The practical outworking of the inward transformation. A heart transformed by love will lead to a transformed life. It is how Christians work out their salvation, work out, outworking, get it? Work out their salvation with fear and trembling. That's 2.12. The rest of this book is filled with some practical ways in which this should occur. The Philippians appeared to have a handful of specific Christian living issues that they were struggling with that Paul addresses directly. Any of you all have specific Christian life issues that you all struggle with? Never, I know. In particular was the issue of unity in the body. We see this because Paul encourages them to continue standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. He says that it would make his joy complete if they were like-minded, having the same love being one in spirit and purpose. At the end, he talks about two women who are quarreling and he commands them to help them to build unity, that the unity within this body would be preserved. The Philippians also appear to be struggling with 
some kind of legalism because he encourages them to look out for the dogs. Yeah, not the dogs, the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. That's an interesting way of saying legalism. You are mutilating the flesh. That was profound. I was like, whoa. And he says, do not put any confidence in the flesh. Further, they appear to be undergoing some kind of external persecution. Because that's a lot within this book. He encourages them to stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. And that most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word of truth without fear. He tells them, it's one of those lines that you go, you have to include that line. I don't like that one. It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but what? Also suffer for His sake? Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now here I still have? Yeah. You guys get the conflict. You get to suffer for my sake too. This persecution also appears to be one of the reasons why Paul mentions joy and rejoicing so much throughout the book. And why he says, follow my example. You see, he points to himself as handing, having abundant joy while imprisoned and facing possible execution. And so he commands them, rejoice in the Lord. When? When things are good? Yes. Is that it? No. When things are not good, what are you to do? Rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say, rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. Why? Because even in the midst of suffering and persecution, whether being brought low or abounding, Paul affirmed the same truth that in every circumstance, my God will supply all of your needs. All of your needs according to His riches. Did you catch that one? According to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. This is a man who is in prison, who is in stocks. He's not getting gold. Those riches that he's talking about are inward. Christ filling him. God giving him strength and hope according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And he can have joy in prison, facing execution. Therefore, he encouraged them, don't be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, grace and peace to you in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the peace of God, 
which surpasses all understanding. I don't understand how you can be so joyous and so filled with peace with what you're going through. I'm glad. Let me tell you. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. There it is again. In Christ Jesus. So that is a snapshot of the book of Philippians from the 30,000 foot view. Um, I hope you're looking forward to the next five weeks. Uh, I know I am. As we break down, as the guys break down in detail these passages. um, And apply them to our lives. And speaking of application, what is ours this morning? What are we to take away from this overview? I'm just going to give you one thing. You've already had a bunch. If you didn't get the joy one, you need to get that one. If you didn't get the love and truth one, you need to get that one. But here's our application. I want you to pray. I want you to pray like Paul prayed. I want you to pray for yourself first. We don't tend to do that. We tend to pray for others. I want you to pray for yourself first, that your love would abound more and more in knowledge and all discernment. And then that you pray for others, that their love may abound more and more in knowledge and all discernment. Ask God first and frequently to help you realize the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ and the joy that accompanies it and the peace that accompanies it, that you would see Christ as so worthy That you would, like Paul, be able to say that all else is lost compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. And that you would want to live or die for Him. That to live is Christ and to die is gain. Pray it for yourself that Jesus would be your all in all. That you would have effusive joy because of the greatness of knowing Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That you would love Him more and more and more and more. May my love abound more, Lord. Lord, please help my love to abound more and more in you. That you would love Him with all of your heart and all of your mind and all of your soul and all of your strength that Christ would be magnified on the altar of your life. And then, that your love for others, pray for yourself. We're still praying for ourselves here, guys. That your love for others would abound more and more as well. That if there is anything in you that shies away from anyone in this church or for unbelievers or outsiders, that God would turn that aversion into love. 
That you would be filled with love for each and every individual in this body. In the broader body of Christ. Yes, even those that we doctrinally disagree with. Them too. And for all the unbelievers that are around you. That you would be filled with love for them. True love, discerning love. That that love that is inward would spill outward to those around you. Love to abound more and more for people. And then let that love that you have prayed for motivate you to pray the same thing for them. Pray for everyone in this church, for your relatives, for your loved ones, those that you are closest to, and those that you aren't. Pray that their love would abound more and more. That their love for God and their love for others would abound. That they would have an all-encompassing vision and love for and joy in Christ. Oh, can you imagine? If you prayed that for the people of this church and all y'all are praying that for me and all y'all are praying that for Eric and for Becca, And for Sammy and everybody in this church is playing. Oh Lord, please let Sammy's love for you and for others abound more and more. Wouldn't that be fantastic? Pray for one another. I gotta pray for you as we close. Oh, Lord God. Pray for each and every person in this room, those who are watching online, those who aren't with us today, that their love for you would abound more and more and more and more, Lord. May it increase May it multiply, O oh Lord, that they would love you more in all knowledge and discernment. I pray that their love for others would abound, Lord, that you would grow it, that it would flourish within their hearts, their love for others would abound in all knowledge and discernment, God so that we would all be able to approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless in the day of Christ that we would be filled with the fruit of righteousness. Our lives would be filled with the fruit of righteousness in Jesus Christ so that you, O God, would be glorified we would live in a manner worthy of the gospel that people would look and say, behold, how they love Christ. What a gospel that is. To you be glory, O God, in Jesus' name. Amen.